Amen. So I want to begin by uh, saying I don't believe in coincidences. 22 years of hearing the sovereignty of God from my pastor. So I do not believe in coincidences. Amen. Partially, too, from studying the Word of God. And with that said, I'm going to fill you in a little bit on my process for preparing each Sunday. All right. So after the sermon, after usually I go home and I pass out for a little while. But then Sunday night comes and I start thinking about what to preach on next week. And um, first and foremost, you got to lean on the Holy Spirit. That's numero uno. When anybody teaches, I'll tell you, anybody who prepares a message, Mike, it's always Holy Spirit, lead me and guide me. Amen? But then what I do is, I'll, like now we're in James, I'll read the next portion of Scripture that's in James. And as my pastor used to say, I let it percolate in my mind. So we start on Sunday night. And you kind of, I might peruse some commentaries, etc., to get ready. But if the Holy Spirit leads in a different direction, that's what we do. And for the most part, um, to prepare, I do what the Lord wants to teach his people. And again, do you think it's coincidental that Sunday night I do this, then Monday morning I open up the Daily Bread and I'm reading and going, boy, does this go along with next week's sermon. So what I'd like to do this morning, I'd like to read this excerpt from the Daily Bread to almost set the tone of the message this morning, okay? So listen up. This is from the Daily Bread last Monday. The Venus flytrap was first discovered in a small area of sandy wetlands not far from our home in North Carolina. These plants are fascinating to watch because they're carnivorous. Venus flytraps release a sweet-smelling nectar into colorful traps that resemble open flowers. When an insect crawls inside, triggering senses along the outer rim, the trap clamps shut in less than a second, capturing its victim. The trap then closes further and emits enzymes that will consume its prey over time, giving the plant nutrients not provided by the sandy soil. God's word tells us that there's another trap that can capture unexpectedly. The apostle Paul warned us, his protege, Timothy, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And some eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 1 Timothy 6, 9-10. And the writer continues, Money and material things may promise happiness, but when they take first place in our lives, we walk on very dangerous ground. We avoid this trap by living with thankful, humble hearts, focused on God's goodness to us through Jesus. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The temporary things of this world will never satisfy like God can. True, lasting contentment is found only through our relationship with Christ, written by James Banks in the Daily Bread last Monday, whatever the date was. So this morning, we're going to actually begin to look at the end of the book of James as we get into chapter 5, and we're going to look at the first, first, six, uh, the first six verses this morning. And I believe as we go through this, it will teach us that one of the greatest indicators of one's genuine salvation and depth of relationship with the Lord and our relationship to and with others is how we view wealth and what we do with it. Amen? And it seems that nothing more clearly reveals what is in a person's heart than our view of money and material possessions. Many who are professors... Maybe not possessors of Christianity, but professors that they walk with Christ, live self-indulgent, 
materialistic lifestyles which tend to indicate that they serve their wealth and the things of this world instead of the God of the Bible. Their lives are full of self-indulgence and materialism, and then they'll say, oh, yes, and I believe in Christ. But listen carefully. So important. There is nowhere in the Scripture that teaches that possessing wealth in and of itself is sinful. God blesses us. Look at Abraham. The man was blessed beyond, and he spoke to God face to face. Moses, Jacob, others along the way throughout Christianity have been blessed by God. It's not sinful to have possessions and wealth. But Timothy, Paul's letter to Timothy gives us the key, though. It is the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. If you are driven by the desire for the material things of this world, neglecting the things of the Lord, and as we'll see others, then there's a problem. And again, listen carefully. Commentators tend to agree that this portion of Scripture was not written to those whose faith is truly in Christ, but those who are professing faith in Christ because of, listen, where their focus was and what their focus was on. It wasn't on the Lord. It was the acquisition of these material blessings. And what they were doing is they were actually suppressing and oppressing others who got in their way to attain it. But I want, I want you to uh, listen carefully with this. Some of the principles that we're going to discuss are very apropos for us as believers. Do you hear me? It's a challenge to see how we view God's blessings and what we do with them and what we do with them. Do you hear me? Oh, it's going to be quiet in here today, Lord. And this small portion of Scripture is really a rebuke a stern rebuke and a judgment on those who made money their bail, the one that they worshipped, okay? And as I said last week, he's the only one with the authority to judge, and he's saying that because the ones he's addressing this to are those who love mammon more than God because only he can look into the heart of a human being. And when he sees in our heart that we're chasing after the things of this world instead of after him, he's going to now give a stern rebuke and a judgment over that. So with that said, please turn to James chapter 5, and let's read verses 1 to 6. And it says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look! The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent ones who were not opposing you. And again, please notice that this passage is not addressed to those who James had previously made many messages to, the brethren, those in Christ, but to the professors of Christianity and not the possessors of Christianity who are taking advantage of the less fornish, taking advantage of the oppressed. And so James writes now, now listen you rich people. And what he's saying is pay attention, listen up to the urgency of what I have to say to you because it's real important that you get it on this side of eternity. Amen? And the terminology used here is indicative of those who would face judgment. So again, it's not for the brethren because, church, our judgment was taken at the cross. We are not going to face judgment. May we face the discipline of the Lord? Absolutely. But we are not going to face the judgment. So these terms here, 
judgment and the terminology he's going to use and how he addresses this really is to those who are, again, professors in Christ, but they don't really possess, possess a true relationship with Jesus Christ. And he says to them, weep and wail. Weep and wail. And that is strong language. It means sob. Sob out loud. Cry. Wail means to cry out. So he's saying, you better weep and wail. Cry out to God. And these terms are often used by Old Testament prophets when he was, they were pronouncing judgment on the pagan nations, that God is coming to judge you, weep and wail and repent. And it's also indicative of those who are going to face the is you, weep and wail, because the day is coming. Listen to Isaiah 13, 6. It says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. And then after the Lord pronounces a judgment on the northern kingdom, Samaria, and on the southern kingdom, Judah, listen to what Micah says. He goes, Because of this, because of the judgments that are coming, I weep and wail. I go about barefoot and naked. He's, in other words, I'm broken and concerned over the judgment that God is going to bring on his people because they've lost their focus on him and they put their focus on the things of the world. Amen? And Jesus himself uses these terms also when he describes the reaction to those individuals who will be excluded from the kingdom. Listen to Matthew 24, 50 to 51. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at the hour he was not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him to a place with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the same language for those who are going to be judged and condemned to hell. And in Matthew 25, 28 to 30, it says, so Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more. And he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Danny, I'm borrowing your chair. All right? Now listen, these terms, weep and wail, they mean strong emotion. They mean to really cry out and sob. Now, why would James use such strong language to say weep and wail over the situation that's it's going to come upon you? Because exactly that. He says, look at the misery that is going to come upon you. He's warning them in the way they are living. And it's interesting, when James addresses the brethren about these things, he says, humble yourself before the Lord. So for the body of Christ, he's saying, when the Holy Spirit convicts us, humble yourself, come before the Lord, Christian, and he will lift you up. But when he addresses these folks, he says, God is going to humble you. God's going to humble them. In other words, they're so prideful and so arrogant and so caught up in the things of the world that it's going to take a work of God to humble them before they would understand that he is the Lord God and to serve him. And how is he going to do it? By the miseries that he's going to bring upon them. And listen, sooner or later, even if they don't respond to the conviction, listen to what it says in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. At that time, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Sooner or later, if they don't want to listen to the conviction of when we speak to them with the gospel message, if they don't want to respond to the conviction of the Lord and they think they're arrogant and prideful and above all things, there's going to come a day when they will kneel before the King of glory because when they see him in his magnificence, there's nothing you can do but fall on your face. I don't care what power, what position somebody has on this side of eternity when they see the King of glory and in front of him. Woof. Read Revelation chapter 1, the Description of Christ, hair like white as wool, 
eyes like blazing fire, feet like burning bronze, and you're going to stand before him and say, hey, I was the CEO of a company. Yeah, right. Okay. And he'll say, well, I'm the CEO of heaven. Amen. I got you. All right? And now let's look at these miseries that James is speaking to, and he really speaks to two. Two types of miseries that will come upon. First is in this present life. For a person who lives a worldly and materialistic mindset never seems to have enough. Never enough. Never satisfied. And the person in this, in this mindset of never having enough is also fearful of the destruction or the depreciation or loss of their wealth. They're so concerned and consumed about keeping their empire that they keep their mind and heart fixed on that instead of the things of God or others. And I have down here the stock watchers, the guys who sit every day and they're watching the stock market. One day they're happy, one day they're sad. One day they're happy, one day they're sad, depending on what the stocks do. But never satisfied, and neither are the eyes of man. The person without Christ is never satisfied. Buy a new car, two years go by. Oh, man, look at that one. Look at that one, right? We eat a meal. Oh, man, come on. Who's with me? You eat a meal, and about an hour and a half later, you're like, man, I'm hungry. You know, you're hungry again, and you're looking for something. But we're never satisfied, no matter what it is. Never satisfied. It um, really gets me is these folks who go to the um, cosmetic surgeons. After a while, how many, what, what's left to cough? You know, they just... <laughs> It's like new nose, new face. I like to get rid of these bags, a little little love handles. But what are you going to do? All right? And remember what James stated in, in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. So you kill, you covet, and cannot get what you want, and quarrel and fight. And the reason, if you take this mindset, people are never satisfied, and they're always struggling to get more. And it doesn't matter who's getting in their way to get what they want. So they're not happy because they're not going to the one who can only satisfy, and that's Jesus Christ. You can meet a Christian in a third world country, and they're more content than the millionaires in the United States. Why? Because they have Jesus Christ, and they're content. Listen to Ecclesiastes 5, 10 to 11. It says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As good increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes upon them? But listen, for us, as born-again believers, as those who have put our faith in Christ, this should not be our mindset. We should have our eyes fixed on the things of the Lord. Amen? The things of heaven. As you guys were saying this morning again, to be heavenly-minded, not earthly-minded. The things on the Lord. And listen to what Philippians 4, 11 to 12 said. This is Paul writing. There's a ton of scriptures today. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. It's a learned thing. It's saying, I'm going to be content wherever God gives me and blesses me with, whether it be much or it be little. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in every, every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. 1 Timothy 6, 6-8 says this, Godliness... With contentment is great gain. No matter what we have, if our life is fixed on Christ, we know that he's providing that situation for us, and we trust him through it. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out. But if we have food and clothing, with that we will be content. Those are our needs. He said he will meet our needs. Not our wants, but you know what the beauty is? Doesn't he bless us with the desires that we want? Looks blessed. 
Amen? And let me ask you a question. Oh, let me just give you one last scripture verse. Hebrews 13, 5. Keep your lives free, right? From the love of money and be content with what you have. Be content. We're blessed people. Amen? All I know is how many people got up and found there was food in the refrigerator? How many people had air conditioning in their homes today? We're a blessed people. Amen? Praise the Lord. So let me ask you, if we were completely honest with ourselves, where would we place ourselves in this contrast? Are we chasing after and never satisfied, or are we content with what the Lord has blessed us with? And only you and God know the answer to that question. Amen? But we as Christians should be so content with wherever. I'm thinking about Frank, TJ. That guy gave up everything, goes down there. He's, lit, he's going at the garbage dumps, but he's thrilled. He's content. And then you got people living, I see it. I go and visit my brother. They're all, you know, and all these millionaires, and they're still thriving. God, what can I get next? And they're never content. They're never at peace. It's scary. doesn't mean there aren't Christians out there that are wealthy and they're content. Yes, they are. But the worldly mindset will lead you away from that peace. And as we go on, James continues his discourse on the misery that is brought upon those who hoard up material possessions and set their hearts on the things and affections of this world. And the problem is, Sooner or later, they're going to waste away, all right? And they, what happens when that happens, if it wastes away or if they lose it? Fear, anger, envy, depression, and at the worst, suicide. Read about the 1929 stock market crash. The fat cat's living the life, you know, Monday before, and all of a sudden the stock market crashes and these guys are throwing themselves out the window or throwing themselves in front of a bus because where was their focus? It was on the possessions and not on the one who gives them to them. All right, so listen to James, uh, James chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Your wealth has rotted, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. So let's break this down. What James does here, he evaluates three ways apart from land and homes in which people can acquire wealth, and then what's going to happen to them over time. They don't last forever. All right, now before we elaborate on the how these things will be lost, we have to look at the why behind it, why James makes the statement here. And it's actually seen at the end of verse 3. Look at the end of verse 3 in James chapter 5. It says, they practice hoarding. They're hoarding up their wealth. All right, they're hanging on to it. People, listen, family, people tend to hoard their wealth for two reasons. They're afraid of losing what they have. And you know what that is? So they're so afraid of losing the things around them or the things they own. The second is, they're selfish. They don't want to give it up and give it to anybody. It's mine, mine, mine. And they don't want to share with those people who are in need. So there's people walking that mindset of making material possessions their God. They're fearful of losing it or they don't want to give it up to share with others because it's all about them for their self-indulgence and their self-gratification and their pleasures. Now, church, please listen carefully. The Lord God provides for us and blesses us, ready, so that he can use us to bring him glory and honor, the advancement of the kingdom, to meet our needs, and to meet the needs of others who are less fortunate. Do you hear me? He gives us and blesses us, maybe to put us in areas where we can advance his kingdom, right, support the ministry, but also to meet the needs of our families, which we'll get to, but to give it away to bless others when we have excess or we have enough to do that. 
And listen, we are absolutely, listen to me, called to meet the needs and provide for our families. Do you hear me? We budget, we plan in prayer, and we use wisdom. Men especially, we are called to meet the needs of our families. We're to be wise in how we use our finances. Listen to 1 Timothy 5.8. It says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives is worse than an unbeliever. So he's saying, yes, you need to work and provide for your families. And when it says family here, back in the day, if a husband died, the sons were supposed to care for the mother. So we are supposed to, it's really the church's responsibility and out, you know, as a family, to care for your extended family if they are in need. We're not to leave it to the government. We're not to leave it to social welfare systems. It is the family that is supposed to take care of the extended family. And unfortunately, with the breakdown in the American family because of the wonderful things that are going on in our country, that's not happening, and people have to rely on the government. And that shouldn't be. shouldn't be. And Scripture is also very clear that we need to be wise stewards of what the Lord has entrusted to us. Listen to Matthew 25, 20 to 21. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five more. His master said to him, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. So God tells us to be, what, good stewards of what he entrusts to us. So that what? We can use it for the increase of his kingdom or to help others. He blesses us so we can bless others. Amen? And listen carefully. After meeting the needs of the family and being wise in planning, like for retirement, etc., we do plan in prayer and God's leading. We're not just, oh, you know, throw our hands up in the air and say, okay, we do plan. We're wise. We as Christians are to use our extras, if you will, for the Christ-centered concerns. Advancement of his kingdom, winning the lost, supporting the ministry, caring for those in need, and helping the less fortunate. God blesses us so we can bless others. He gives us the extras, not to hoard it up, but to bless others. Amen? Praise the Lord. Oh, it's quiet, Lord. Listen carefully. We were a Christian just not to hoard or stockpile our fortunes and uselessly stash it away without a regard for God's will or the concern of others. Stick it away, stick it away, stick it away. Stockpile, stockpile, hoard. No, we should take the extras and use it for the advancement of God's kingdom. Amen? And listen, I'm talking to myself this morning also. And again, we tend not to do this because of fear. Oh, what happens if there's a catastrophe and I need this? Do you not think that God knows what he's going to bring you through and that he'll meet your needs? And if we trust him, he will meet those needs? Or the second is we don't want to give it away because we want to spend it on, guess who? self and enjoy all the pleasures of this world before meeting the needs of others and i have down here i got to give kudos to this church when i tell you that the folks of the church have given i've been here 30 years and when there is a need i've seen the people of this church rise up beyond financially with the talents his gifts and talents through his job others who have given right but they meet the needs i mean lisa's here we helped the daughter the church raised a good sum to help her get that surgery right a small church, but, but, but it, you guys are wonderful, wonderful in that you hear the call of God to meet the needs of others. Um, I know it was Pastor Steins, and we're getting there, to the, whatever the church brings in, to tithe what we bring as, as a total to missions, and we're getting there. We're bring, as you see, we're bringing on more and more missionaries, and uh, missionaries who visit here see that, and they go, wow, you guys support a lot of missionaries for a small church. Yes, we do, because they're doing God's work, amen? 
Listen to Acts 20, 35. This is Paul speaking. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard, in this way we must help the weak. And remember the words of our Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And Proverbs 3.27 says this, Do not withhold good from those whom it's due when it's in your power to do it. And 1 Peter 4.10, As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's grace. Look at the grace God extended us. And think of the grace we can extend to others when we meet the needs of others. Amen? Praise the Lord. Remember Boaz? And the guys would say, bless you. And he would cry back, bless you, workers. And they said that because this was a man after God's heart. And what he would do, he even told his workers, and I was following the law, leave, don't glean the edges of the field so that the poor and needy can come in. Now here's a teaching for you. He didn't go and give it to the poor and needy. He said, let them come work for it. Uh Big difference. But he left that out there so the poor and needy would have food. And look what he was doing. He was following Leviticus 23. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. He's saying, you don't have to bring it all in. Leave some, the extras, for those who are less fortunate so you can bless them so they'll have sustenance and what to live on. We're called to be good stewards, wise stewards, but we're not called to be hoarders of our wealth at the detriment of the Lord's work or the detriment of others when it's in our power to help somebody out. Amen? And then James goes on in verse 2 and 3 and condemns this practice of amassing goods. And again, he writes this, Your wealth has rotted. Moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold is silver and corroded. Now, rotting was talking the food stuff. And what he's saying is that these guys would store up the food and it would rot. And they'd rather let it rot than to help somebody out by feeding them. It's ludicrous, but it was theirs. They worked for it. Why should I give it away? Amen? The mindset. Oh, I don't even know where I am. And then please turn to uh, Luke 12, 16 to 21. And we're pretty much all familiar with this scripture verse. Luke 12, 16 to 21. Ah, the ruffling of pages and not the scrolling of a phone. I love it. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. An abundant harvest. Abundant. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, I have plenty laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. That means you're morally depraved. How could you just store up your excess when there's folks out there that could use your blessing? This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then you'll get what you prepared for yourself. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. And I'm not preaching a social gospel here, but it's the church. If we see a need and God has blessed us abundantly to reach out and help meet the needs of others. And listen, I'm I'm not going to get ahead of myself, so I'll stop right there. And when James speaks of moths eating your garments, what he's speaking to is how many shirts in your closet that the moths sooner or later can eat. And can we do a uh, jacket drive in 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 the winter, bring these jackets, or use some of what we bought, the 52 shirts, and use some of that to bless We have excess. We do. And I know I'm preaching to Americans today. 
If we were somewhere else, this message would be quite different. But even then, they would accept it and take from the little that they have and give it to others. And listen to Matthew 6, 19 and 20. It says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. And don't let the right hand know what the left is doing. Oh, you know what I did? I gave a jacket to a poor guy. You don't have to do that. God knows. Just do it and do it as unto the Lord and bless somebody. And God knows. God knows, and it kind of goes in your reward list for heaven. Amen? And finally, James speaks to currency, gold and silver. And what was happening during the times, they started to mix alloys into the gold and silver coins, and they would corrode, and they'd be less valuable over time. So what he's saying is this. No matter what we amass, it's to bless others. And you know what the pinnacle of this is? Sooner or later, guess what, guys? We're going to leave the earth. Sorry, but we're going to die. And, and you know what? You don't know if you're going to leave it to somebody who will use it wisely or a fool. All right? And as my pastor used to say, you don't see a U-Haul behind a hearse. We ain't taking it with us. Amen? Yes, we want to plan and help our children, our grandchildren, etc., but we ain't taking it with us. And this burden Solomon. Listen to what he said in Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and 19. I hated all things. I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to one who comes after me, and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will control, have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. You're going to leave it behind. Yes, again, we plan for our children, grandchildren, but then we can use our extras and excess to bless others. Amen? Now James moves on from denouncing this type of mindset, the storing up of riches for oneself, instead of being rich towards God, and goes into the second misery that will come upon these folks. And this is the one that is more concerning. Excuse me. The greatest misery man will ever face is the misery after death for the person who has chosen to live by the patterns of this world and store up the riches and wealth in this world and has not been rich towards God because now they stand before the eternal God. So no matter what, nothing. But they will stand before God and have to give an account if they believed in him by faith, if they used their gifts and talents for his glory, if they used the extras to bless others. So sooner or later, these folks who have been living for this world are going to stand before Jesus Christ and all they amassed. They could have been the president of the United States, a CEO of the biggest company, the richest Saudi Arab guy, and you know what? It will mean zero. Zero. Only what is done for the glory of God and the buildup of his kingdom. Amen? Amen? Please turn to Luke chapter 16, and we're going to read a long passage, verse 19 to 31, and again, many of us are familiar with this passage. And we'll read it together. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I'm in great agony in this fire. 
But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us there's a great chasm that's been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father, Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent, he said to them. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not even convinced if someone rises from the dead. The rich man enjoyed the pleasures on this side of eternity and built his kingdom on that. And when he died, it meant absolutely nothing. Zero. Because he wasn't rich towards God. And the scary part is, as I read this, is that he says, please, send those to warn my brothers. And he says, they have Moses and the prophets. And they even have the one who rose from the dead, Jesus Christ. My word is out there. My son came to proclaim my kingdom. There are Christians that are proclaiming the kingdom, but you still choose to live for that. So even with all that, if they won't believe that, I don't know what to tell you. They have hardened hearts, and that's exactly what it is, a hardened heart, because they were so enthralled and captivated by the here and now, they failed to see every one of us. So where do we store up our treasures? Church, for us, we have the word of God. And it's taught us to be good stewards and where our focus should be and how to handle the blessings the Lord bestows on us. But listen, are we hindered? Are we hindered by fear or a self-indulgent attitude? Are we afraid to let go of what we have out of fear or because we only want it to please ourselves so we don't want to give it away? And uh, it's a term I used to hear. It says, when it comes to meeting the needs of others, we have deep pockets and short arms. You know what that means? Can't reach what's down there. All righty. And now James goes on at the end of verse 3 through 6 and gives a list of sins that stem from a hardened heart and obsession with prosperity that only reinforce the reasons why they're going to face the judgment of God that will come upon them by living by this philosophy, this, this mindset that I just got to grasp the things of this world. Look at verse 3 to 6 in James 5 again. It says, You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look. The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent ones who were opposing you. And the first reason for God's judgments they were hoarding is they didn't pay their laborers. And in an agrarian society where the poor was, it was so important for them to get paid that day whether it be in food or finances, to meet their basic needs, whether it was food, clothing, housing, whatever. So this guy is holding back. After these guys, one of the saddest stories we hear today, whatever your views are on immigration, when those guys who are over there, those day laborers, they go out and work, and these guys, these contractors know they have no rights, they don't pay them. How awful. How awful. Those guys go and they work hard, thinking they're going to get paid, and then they hold back their wages or don't give them what they were promised. It's wrong. It's wrong. And the law may not hear, but the Lord hears. Amen? And listen to what Luke 19.13 says. Do not defraud or rob your neighbor. Do not hold back the wages of a higher worker overnight 
And in Deuteronomy 24, it says this, Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor or needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry out to the Lord against you and you'll be guilty of sin. Because they needed that to live, to get food, to survive. So these guys would hold on to those wages. Why? To pad their wealth. So they can indulge and have self-indulgence so they didn't pay the laborers. And James begins this first four with the word look. And today we'd be saying something like, are you kidding me? Do you see what you're doing? That's that idea of look. He's saying, take a look at what you're doing, guys. Church, it's not as if the owner couldn't afford to pay his workers. He just held it back by his own volition. He didn't want to pay them. So he was holding back their wages. He just didn't want to pay them so he could amass his wealth. And he believed that they, as the poor, could do nothing about it. Nothing about it. Family, these laborers were the poor of the poor. They needed these wages. To go without meant not meeting their basic needs. Though they cried out, the masters and the owners didn't listen, but El Shaddai listened. Read the scripture. The Lord Almighty, God Almighty listened and heard their cries, and sooner or later, he's going to deal with the situation to meet the needs of the oppressed and then deal with those who are holding back their, their wages. Listen to Jeremiah twenty-two thirteen. It says, Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. And when it says woe to him, it means God's judgment's going to come on those who do such a thing. Amen? So how can we as New Testament believers make practical application of this? Well, we know we're not going to receive the judgment wrath of God, right? We're in Christ. And for two reasons. If we neglect being honest in our business arrangements or business agreements, are we people of integrity when we do business with others? Are we, when the time comes, do we pay what we're supposed to pay or charge what we're supposed to charge? Are we doing it according to the Lord? Or if we neglect to help meet the needs of the less fortunate when it's in our power to do so, we can't do that. And let me say this. We don't have to look to a third world country. In our families, people we come in contact in our church, there are people that may have needs, may not voice them, but as a church body, as a friend, as a relative, we can help meet those needs. And I'm not talking about enabling. I'm talking about assisting. If someone wants to squander their wealth, we're not there to help. Okay, we'll keep helping you while you go out and gamble. Or if someone's using drugs, we don't help them. Or if they won't work. Scripture says if they don't work, they shouldn't eat. And there are folks I know that they... Their pride won't let them go out and do a, a job that may take lesser pay or what they consider a menial position. I don't care what it is. And see that guy sitting in the shirt over there? He would do anything. And he's done well in life, but he would go out and he would do anything if it means that it, he needed to do that to take care of his family. Pride doesn't stand in the way. Amen? It's meeting the needs of our family. One night on a Monday night prayer, a homeless guy showed up here. And there were people in that prayer group that helped him out. And it's funny that he was walking on Merrick Road, and the next day a brother saw him and started talking, recognized him from that prayer group, and said, hey, can you give me some money? I'm hungry. So that brother took him to Town Bagel, bought him breakfast, and that was that. That's how you do it. There are times I would not say you give money to those who were asking for it. Hey, can I get you a meal? Hey, can I do this for you? I know of others who people came up to him, and they were ready to walk into a grocery store, and they bought him a cart of food. 
So we can help in that way. Again, I, don't, I wouldn't say just give money to those you don't know because they may squander it on something. But we want to try to meet the, no, the needs of others when we're in the position to do so. Amen? And remember, our true rewards are in heaven. So we look, should look to store up our riches there and not here. Amen? And I believe fulfilling the Lord's work in us and through us to advance the gospel and to meet the needs and concerns of others is the Lord's work. And when we do that, I believe we're storing up treasures in heaven. It could be discipling somebody. It could be taking somebody under your wing and saying, hey, cup of coffee, what's going on? And then you share with them. There's many ways to meet the needs, whether it's emotional, physical, whatever it is. We can meet the needs as the body of Christ, even to somebody within this congregation, someone in your family, somebody at work, or even those we don't know. All right, enough of that. Let's go on and look at another reason for justification, for judgment on these folks he's talking about. And it's because they're living a luxurious and self-indulgent life without a concern for God or others. It's, verse 5 says again, You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Family, these overly pampered and flesh-leading lifestyle, it just made this group being addressed less and less sensitive to the eternal realities that sooner or later they're going to stand before a holy God. They're basing, and it says, it's like the day, the fattened calf. And you know what that means? Sooner or later, that fattened calf, you know what they do? They slaughter it. So he's saying, you're like the fattened calf. You're just ready to go to the slaughter, the judgment wrath of God, by keeping your focus on this world and not the eternal glory of God and the welfare of others. He's saying, you're like a fattened calf going to the slaughter. And their mentality is this, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that is reality. They are going to die, but they don't even think about that they're going to have to stand before a holy God. So again, how do we live our lives, heavenly-minded or earthly-minded? Where do we build up our treasures, the pleasures of earth or the glories of heaven? And I believe it's a no-brainer for us who have put our faith into Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We want to build up our children because they are waning and will pass away, and sooner or later we're leaving them behind. And finally, the last reason James gives justification for their judgment is they oppress the weak in a palace, and in some cases they even drag them to court and sentence them to death so they could take their land and their possessions. If we look back at James 2.6, it says this, we read that the rich and powerful were accused of dragging the poor Christians into court and exploiting them to take their land and their possessions. Do you remember King Ahab? Oh, I want Naboth's vineyard, and I can't get it. He won't give it to me. Two scoundrels will sit next to him. They'll say he blasphemed the law, blasphemed God, blasphemed the king, and then we'll drag him out and kill him and take his vineyard. And that's exactly what they did. God forbid. God forbid we have a mindset like that that will do anything to gain the possessions of this world, even to the death of another human being. And when James calls those being oppressed or even condemned the innocent, what he's saying, they were innocent of wrong, any wrongdoing. And the only thing they were guilty of is being poor. That was their big downfall, poor and defenseless. And though defenseless in the eyes of the world, they were not defenseless in the eyes of God. So they didn't resist. Like their Savior, they took the faulty judgment and just honored God through their lives, no matter what happened to them. So church, what can we make of all this, take from all this, and I believe it's very simple and something we've already alluded to this morning. It's when the Lord blesses us with wealth or prosperity. And it is a blessing when we use these things for what he desires, the advancement of his kingdom, 
the fulfilling of the Great Commission, supporting the local ministry, caring for those in need, and helping those less fortunate. That's why he blesses us, to meet the needs of our families, to bring glory and honor to him through advancing the kingdom, and to meet the needs of others. And I believe the opposite is also true, that these things can become a snare and precipitate the discipline of the Lord and or loss of rewards in eternity when we lose sight of why the Lord blesses us. When we take steps to ruthlessly acquire or unjustly gain wealth, or if we live self-indulgently or hoard up our wealth so that we can spend it on our own pleasures, neglecting the purposes for the reason the Lord has blessed us. We can undergo his discipline. Is this what you're building your life on? Well, when it disappears, you don't have to question why. And let me say this. Let me leave you one last scripture, but before I do, I'm actually going to the beginning of the sermon. Do we not live in the United States of America? Has not God blessed us abundantly? Come on, church. We are blessed abundantly, right? So those who are blessed abundantly, who have excess, should help to meet the needs of others. Amen? Listen to 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, he's not holding back on us. He wants us to enjoy life. He wants us to fellowship, do, give, and find enjoyment when we do bless others, yes? It says in verse 18, it goes on, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. God blesses us so we can bless others. Are we to meet the needs of our families? Absolutely. What does he say in Scripture? That we're worse than the pagan if we don't do that. So we look for the welfare of our household. Yes, we plan in prayer with retirement or this or that coming, but what God blesses with our excess, we look to bless others. There are many people in need. And you know what? If the church and our country lived by those standards, we wouldn't need a welfare or social system because we'd be taking care of our own families and those who are less fortunate. Amen? So with that said, I'd really like to show you a beautiful video that I think really sums it up better than I could ever sum it up. And it's an old one, an oldie but goodie. So Matthew, if you'll kill the lights and roll that video, please. And uh, some of us may need some tissues, but that's okay. I did. Someone called your name You turned and saw this young man And he was smiling as he came And he said, friend You may not know me now 
then he said, but wait You used to teach my Sunday school And I was only eight Then the class would start And one day when you said that prayer I asked Jesus in my heart Thank you for giving to the Lord I have a life that was changed Thank you for giving to the Lord I am so glad you gave Then another man stood before you And said, remember the time A missionary came to your church His pictures made you cry You didn't have much money But you gave it anyway Jesus took the gift you gave And that's why I'm here today Thank you for giving to the Lord I am a life that was changed Thank you for giving to One by one they came Far as the eye could see Each life somehow touched By your generosity Little things that you had done Sacrifices made I noticed on the earth In heaven I know up in heaven You're not supposed to cry But I am almost sure There were tears in your eyes As Jesus took your hand And you stood before the Lord He said, my child, look around you For great is your reward That was changed Thank you For giving to the Lord I am so glad you
Praise God. And let me make something clear. I'm not up here being a Creflo dollars. I don't want a $5 million plane to fly around in. It's not a push. It's the idea that God blesses us so we can bless others. He's going to put people in our pathways that as we bless them, it opens the door to say, why? Because this is what my Savior would do. That he would meet your need because he loves you. And I'm meeting your need because I want to show the love of Christ to you. This is not about building a monster ministry, a mega church, or anything like that. It's about blessing others as the Lord has blessed us. Amen? Do you hear me? I really want to say that because I don't want you to think this is a push for, oh, no. That God gives us extras. He gives us excess so we can use it to bless others. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you have allowed us to live in this nation that is so abundantly blessed that you have blessed our families with more than just our basic needs, my God. That even on a day such as this, we can sit in an air-conditioned house or swim in a nice pool or something, Lord God, that you have blessed us abundantly. Lord, give us a heart to build up treasures in heaven. And I wonder, Lord, from listening to this song, if some of the rewards won't be as others come up to us and say, thank you, thank you, thank you, and we won't even know who they are, but to say you blessed me in ways you don't even know by giving your time, your talents, your gifts for the work of Christ. Lord, use us to be a blessing to others in whichever capacity you want to use us, whether it's the sacrifice of our lives to give into others, whether it's the sacrifice of our finances, Lord, the sacrifice of our time, that you would receive the glory, honor, and praise and would draw these individuals closer to you, Lord, or come to faith in you. Help us to love others as you have loved us. And we thank you for the sacrifice that you made. You gave it all and came to earth and died on a cross, that horrible death, so we could have eternal life. Let us think with the same mindset, sacrificial living, sacrificial giving, so that you receive the glory and others are blessed. Let us be the church with that mindset. Let us be the individuals with that mindset. And Lord, we give you all the glory and honor because it's you who bless us to bless others. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So go this week and be a blessing to others. And as my pastors say, you will be tested. <laughs> All right. So have a blessed afternoon. Please stay cool. If uh, I know we talked to someone here, our home's open. If your air conditioner is not working, you know, I just put my wife on a spot. She's going, what am I going to cook? But have a blessed day. Amen.